Blog Talk Radio.
skies broadcasting lies to billions of people. Cameras on the streets tracking who we meet and call this liberty. Gentlemen, welcome to the Rifleman Radio Show. I guess uh, that was the end of the music. I don't know if something's going wrong again with the uh, with the service in, in New York or not. Regardless, we're going to have a great show anyway. <clears throat> I want to thank everyone for listening tonight, and uh, also go thank those folks who will be listening later uh, through their through downloading the show through iTunes uh, or uh, or live stream listening. Uh, I appreciate you folks listening, and I do the show for you guys, so I'm glad uh, if there's if there's a way that we can uh, serve you better, then I'd love to know what that is, okay? Make sure you guys uh, drop me a note. If you have subjects that uh, you want to see covered, guests that you want to hear, then uh, please let me know, because that's the only way I'm going to know. Otherwise, I'm going to keep... Uh, Loading the shows up uh, to do the shows that uh, I want to do, and I hope that that's going to be uh, that's going to be uh, some kind of a uh, a match to the things that you want to hear. Tonight we'll be talking about the battles of January, and uh, yes, I know we have covered the battles of uh, Trenton and Princeton. And uh, we've discussed, kind of discussed, the forage wars before. But I think that these battles are important enough that that they deserve mentioning again, especially during the time of year when they occurred. It's one thing to, to listen to a battle that occurs in freezing rain and snow uh, in the summer, you know, when you're lying on your back in the in the warm summer grass, gazing up at the clear skies and uh, and having a, a nice warm breeze blow across you. And it's another thing entirely to step outside into freezing rain and 30 and 40 knot winds and 
and feel the bite of the cold and the ice and realize that that's what these men were going through at that time during those battles. <clears throat> so, uh, we're going to uh, battles of Trenton, Princeton, and the Forge Wars tonight. We'll start off the show as we always do, and that is by giving you guys a uh, an opportunity to call in and thank your local Appleseed crews for the work that they're doing. And if you want to, uh, if you want to uh, give an actor action report or an event that you just ran, or you want to talk uh, about an upcoming event, we'll be glad to uh, take that. But we'd love for you to, we'd love for you to uh, to call in and give your local crews uh, a thank you for the work that they're doing, okay? <clears throat> All right. The number is 346 347-308-8790. 347-308-8790. I'm not sure if I said 346. It's 347-347-308-8790. Eight seven nine zero. You call in, and uh, uh, Sam will catch you uh, and uh, and ask you what you want to talk about, and we'll get you in the air. All right. Uh, it's good to see uh, uh, old Grunt here in the uh, in the chat and listening. Uh, I hope all is going well with you, brother, and that. Uh, and that you and your family are doing well. Uh, I haven't seen you in quite a while or talked to you, so I hope things are going well. Uh, I'd like to thank uh, uh, Kirk Wheeler here in Texas. Kirk does the graphics for Appleseed. Uh, Almost any of the Appleseed stuff you see from the, uh, the billboards that have gone up nationwide, to the trifolds, to uh, almost any of the promo stuff that you've seen. Kirk Wheeler, uh, he has done the designs and the work on that, and uh, he's a great guy. He is a part of the uh, Dallas-Fort Worth crew, and uh, he has put a lot of heart and soul into the Appleseed program, and I want to give my thanks to him. Also, uh, Floyd Ferguson, who is also part of the Dallas-Fort Worth crew. Floyd has been uh, a nonstop hard worker there in DFW, and, and of course, nationwide, too. He, he's more than willing to apply his uh, his efforts and help out anywhere in the nation that he can. And uh, Floyd has done an absolutely fantastic job there. And, of course, they're backed up by a great crew in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. There's a great crew there. Uh, they have their shoots uh, sold out just about every month, and they do a fantastic job. <clears throat> All right, once again, if you want to call in, you're welcome to call in to uh, to ask questions, to give your local Appleseed crews thanks, to uh, give a report of an event uh, that uh, you just hosted or that you instructed at, 
or to let us know about an upcoming event. You can call in at 347-308-8790. And we get to do this if you're listening live, right? If you're listening in the archives, it's not going to do you any good. All right. Uh, I want to uh, I want to make sure that I mention that uh, Battle Road, which is uh, the company that we have here in Central Texas, Battle Road USA is hosting a five-day combat tracking course at our range here in Central Texas. And uh, this course, uh, you guys heard us talk about it a couple of weeks ago. We had John Hurt, who is the uh, founder and CEO of uh, TIR Group, T-Y-R Group, LLC. Uh, John is a retired Special Forces uh, A-team member, uh, and uh, he spent many years learning his craft, learning how to track in hostile situations. And he's going to share that knowledge with us during the five-day course that's going to be running here, April, I mean, uh, February 12th through the 16th. Now, we still have a couple of slots left. If you... If you have the time, this is going to be a course that is absolutely worth your time and money. They're going to teach you how to how to learn to track, how to develop a picture of your quarry using the sign that they have left behind, and then how to do this as a member of a team so that you can protect the tracker so that he can track uh, or she can track uh, in a safe environment while you find, fix, and finish your quarry. Now, this doesn't have to just apply to combat tracking teams, all right? The skill of tracking can be used uh, anywhere you want to use it. So, uh, whether you want to track game animals if you want to be able to track uh, a lost individual, if you want to be able to know uh, if somebody has been uh, walking around your property, uh, the skill of tracking is not a uh, is not some archaic magical skill. It's actually a science, and uh, you'll be learning how to decipher the sign in a scientific fashion during the five days that John's going to be here. It's going to be a great time. Uh, and we'll have we'll, we'll have plenty of great evenings around the campfire, as well as the instruction during the day. Uh, John's one of those guys that uh, he is more than willing uh, to stay there around the campfire with you as long as you are sitting there. He's going to be camping out with us, and uh, and you'll have the opportunity to learn a lot of things that uh, will probably never be taught in any classes while you're sitting around the campfire in the evenings, all right? If you want to figure out how to uh, how to sign up for this, <clears throat> then uh, you can uh, go to uh, battleroadusa.com and click on the link there. That will give you the, uh, the information to the page and also the sign-up link, all right? And I can't tell you that, uh, that they can't tell you enough what a great course this is going to be. You know how, how we talk about going to an apple seed uh, can change your life? 
you want to do a course like this, can do the exact same thing. Now, I'm not going to tell you that it's, uh, that it's going to be a complete uh, life makeover. I'm just telling you that when you go to a course like this and you share the time with, uh, with your fellow attendees and you spend time around the campfire and stuff like that, you're going to uh, create friendships. You're going to learn a lot. And the information uh, that you gain during a course like this is going to affect you the rest of your life, all right? So think about uh, attending the course. Once again, it's going to be at the Battle Road USA Range in Central Texas, February 12th through the 16th. And uh, on top of the course, I'm throwing in uh, the fact that uh, if anyone, anybody who would like to come to the course uh, will be welcome to either stay after the course or come back and uh, hunt hogs until you get a hog. All right? So just think about that for a minute. You go to a, you, you pay for a hog hunt uh, anywhere in Texas. It's uh usually about 250 to 550 uh for a two or three day hog hunt. And uh then say you get uh, uh you know a medium sized hog about 2 250 and you get uh, 70 or 80 pounds of meat at $3 a pound, uh, that's going to uh, be between 600 and 800 bucks that uh, you would have had to have paid to get the trip and the meat, which is going to be about what you're paying for the course. The course is $700 for uh, for most folks, 650 for uh, for law enforcement or military. Paying for a uh, for a hog hunt, getting the hog meat, and then on top of that, getting a five day combat tracking course taught by a uh, a badass Viking special forces instructor uh, thrown in for free. All right. I also want to remind you guys that registration is open for the Battle Road USA Run and Gun event. This is a four-and-a-half-mile looping course with uh, nine to ten shooting stations for rifle and pistol, as well as obstacles in between each station. This is a great chance for you to test out your gear, your physical skill level, and skill level with your firearms. Uh, I've told you before, I've talked to plenty of folks, and uh, in the prepping and uh, uh, and self-reliance world and other shooters and stuff like that, folks are always telling me about their preps, about how they got uh, this rifle and this pistol and this holster and this backpack and these boots and these this canteen and these mag carriers and on and on. But I always ask them, have you ever... Have you ever put it all on and moved around with it? And uh, most of the time, it, at the very most, it's just in their bedroom. Uh, and uh, and most folks have never put it on and gone uh, 100 yards, let alone uh, uh, one, two, three, or four miles, and tried to shoot in it, and went out, go over obstacles and stuff like that. This is how you're going to figure out whether your gear is working or not. You don't figure it out if your gear is working by putting it on and looking in the mirror and admiring how sharp you look, how tactical you look. <laughs> you can look good. That's never going to tell you 
how big of a blister you're going to get uh, on your thigh or on your uh, shoulder or how hard it's going to be to grab a mag to reload with wearing it that way. It's not going to tell you uh, how difficult it's going to be to access your water for a drink or how you're never going to be able to get your uh, rifle into your shoulder in this, uh, with this setup or how those boots, or well, they feel good standing in them, uh, that you need a, a half size larger if you're going to walk uh, more than uh, 40 feet in them. The only way to find this out is by doing it. And if you're going to do it, why not do it with a bunch of your friends? Why not do it somewhere that's, uh, that's going to test you on it? Uh, the folks who have come through the running gun so far, uh, every single one of them, uh, well, I won't say ever, there may, be, there may have been one or two who were unhappy about the way that their gear performed, but everybody was happy about the course. You're going to enjoy the course, and uh, you're going to have a good time. Also, if you want to, uh, if you want to run the course for free, you can do that by uh, sending a an email to Mark at BattleRoadUSA.com and telling him that you want to come a day earlier on Friday and run the course with the rest of the RSOs and then volunteer your time and work a station as an RSO on Saturday. We need folks to uh, staff and man the stations. If you're willing to do that, send a, uh, uh, an email to mark at battleroadusa.com and let him know that you'd like to do that, and he'll get back to you on that, and uh, you can run the event for free. Otherwise, it's uh, 100 bucks. And the, uh, the registration is open, and Sam, I see you're, you're really fast on the draw with, uh, with the uh, addresses there. If you would put in the, the address for the uh, Battle Road USA uh, run gun and uh, and so you can go ahead and get uh, your tickets, get your spot reserved now. Because uh, I think we had close to close to 85 or 90 runners this last event. And that's about all that we're going to be able to do because uh because there's only only so many folks you can run through the course uh during the day so if you want to make sure that you get your slot uh then go ahead and grab a ticket now uh I believe they send me notices whenever somebody uh grabs a ticket and I think we've already uh, we've already sold a dozen tickets or more already uh the minute we opened up registration. So if you want to make sure that you get a slot, then uh, then go ahead and uh, go to the BattleRoadUSA.com site, and uh, you can get signed up for the event. Get your slot there. If you want to uh, uh, work as an RSO, run the event for free, then, like I said, uh, send uh, Mark an email at mark at BattleRoadUSA.com and let him know that you want to uh, work as an RSO. And you'll just come on Friday, and you'll run the event with us on Friday, and then you'll man a station on Saturday. <clears throat> All right. And that includes a, uh, a sharp looking and a meal. All right. 
Okay. Uh, once again, before we get started, if any of you would like to call in, you're welcome to call in and uh, tell us about the, any events that you've run to uh, uh, to ask any questions or to give thanks to your local Apple City crew. Uh, that would be local. It would be national. Uh, you can call in at 347-308-8790. And if uh, the folks in Alaska are listening, I've got a uh, a local chapter of the Tactical Beard Owners Club is uh, stationed in Anchorage, and they are looking for a couple of more members to round out their charter. Uh, so if any of you guys have any of the instructors there in Anchorage would like to uh, become a member, let me know because I already talked to, uh, uh, to Mr. Estridge in Alaska. Who's, uh, who's spinning up the charter there, and uh, also to Mike Hartman, who uh, runs uh, Tactical Beard Owners Club. <laughs> and uh, they're willing to fast-track you guys in to get the Alaska uh, charter rounded out. All right? So send me a message if you'd like to become part of the, uh, the uh, Anchorage Tactical Beard Owners Club. Now, of course, you got to have a beard, and uh, you need to have either a background in the military or current military, or you know, or you can be uh, a you could even be an apple seed instructor. All right, and uh, but you got to have a beard. That's one of the uh, that's the the big thing. So if you guys uh, if there's anybody up in the Anchorage area would like to uh, to join the Tactical Beard Owners Club, then uh, shoot me a message and we'll uh, see about getting you hooked up with the folks in Anchorage. I want to remind you that that though you don't hear it on the news as much anymore because we've been in Iraq and Afghanistan we're not in Iraq now but we've been in in, uh, Afghanistan uh, and in the Middle East for over 10 years and so to the news folks, it's old news. It's old news that we're over there. It's old news that uh, that American men and women are being shot and killed and blown up and wounded every, uh, almost every day, certainly every week. But they are, they are tens of thousands of wounded American men and women. Some of these guys are heinously wounded. And we want you to remember these folks. And I'd like you to go a little bit farther than remembering it. I'd like you to figure out some way to, and I know that you're always getting asked by me about it in some way, in something, doing something. Helping out save the nation, helping out apple seeds, uh, helping out with this, helping out with that. And you're right, I, I do ask that a lot, and I do it a lot. And uh, I'm going to ask you again that uh, figure out a way that you can help the folks that are coming back. 
from Afghanistan right now and who've come back from Iraq wounded because certainly, I mean, it sounds bizarre, but certainly in most cases it would be much simpler uh, just to have been uh, a fatality in, uh, in the theater of combat. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm certainly not saying it would be better. I'm just saying it would be simpler in a lot of cases. Because then they just ship you back in a bag or a box or a cup uh, or an envelope, and uh, they give your family members a flag and a and a hundred grand or a couple of hundred grand, and uh, that's the end of it. People are hurt, and uh, and their hearts are broken and ripped out of them, but but then life goes on, right? It's a lot different when they come back with their arms and legs ripped off. If you were a a proud, uh, uh, courageous, hardworking man or woman, and you come back from overseas and you've you've had uh, your arms or legs blown off or part of your head blown off or you've been shot to rag dolls, uh, it's a whole new world. It's a completely new world, and and it's a hard one. It's a very very hard one, and we can't forget these folks. We can't let them go over there and defend the nation. Uh, doing their best and then get shot to pieces or blown to pieces and come back here and we just say, yeah, that's good, but I don't really, I'm I'm proud of you, but I don't have time to help and I don't don't really want to think about it because it's uh, it's difficult to think about. I hope everything goes well for you. Uh, All right, bye. Uh, We've got to figure out how we can we can get involved and help, and the, and this doesn't just go to the the folks with the physical wounds, because there's no way you can go into uh, uh, theater of combat and experience it and then come back without being changed mentally. I mean, I've seen, I've known quite a few guys that. Uh, to me, it appeared that they had, uh, it didn't phase them. And, of course, some of the folks seemed like they thoroughly enjoyed it. But uh, but everybody has a different experience. And, uh, and a lot of folks, uh, it pushes a lot of folks out to the extreme edge. And... Uh, So figure out a way that you can become involved. There's a lot of organizations like the Wounded Warrior, and I'm not going to get into any uh, discussion of them being anti-gun or anything like this. I, I don't know if they are they are or not, but uh, I know that they help the folks that they're working with. 
And there's plenty of other ones you can get involved in, too. All right? See about, uh, see about getting involved with some of these organizations that are helping out the American soldiers, the men and women who've been uh, injured in combat, and see if you can do something uh, to help. All right, that's all I'm going to say about that. Uh, it uh, Ogrunt says, uh, show me a protective mask that'll work, man. Well, uh, you're right. It probably wouldn't work very good, but uh, but I'll tell you this: uh, you can you can shave a beard off pretty quick, and uh, I know this by showing up uh, for PT on uh, Friday morning without shaving. I know that you can certainly uh, shave it off real quick, even with a dull razor, standing right there in formation at 5 a.m. So I guess if you can hold your breath for about 60 seconds, you might be able to clean off enough uh, area to get you a protective mask on. But uh, if you're... uh, if you are, uh, if you don't even have a protective mask uh, that you can carry around with you, I guess that's kind of a moot point, right? And uh, very few of the gun, very few of the folks uh, that we're working with right now, uh, that we are involved with in, in a combat uh, nature, uh, are uh, showing any signs of uh, using any chemical weapons. So, <laughs> so I guess that's a chance you'd have to take, but. Uh, uh, there was also a study by the Pentagon released just recently that showed soldiers with beards were much more effective. And uh, I also saw a uh, listing just recently that showed uh, that the Army was now allowing folks to, uh, if it was part of their religion, to wear beards, to wear their uh wear their headdresses because I saw a guy a uh an E seven and he was wearing ACUs with a full beard and a turban on. And right in the middle of the turban was a little square where he had his uh rank put in there. Yeah, I really I'm 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 still amazed at this because uh my view of the military was one to kind of homogenize everyone rather than allowing them to uh allowing them to be uh different. Uh I'm not sure how good this is gonna work, but uh but it, they're definitely doing it. And uh I know that uh, uh in Norway uh the religion of uh, Thor and Odin is recognized uh, by uh, the country and the government. Uh, maybe they'll start doing that uh, here in the United States. Maybe you'll see a lot of uh, a lot of guys with uh, big, long, bushy red beards uh, standing in ranks uh, with uh, with Thor's hammer pendants around their necks. Now, <clears throat> regardless, uh, let's go ahead and get started. With uh, with the history tonight, <clears throat> like I said, we've covered this uh, we've covered this several times, but I don't think it can be I don't think it can be covered enough. 
we talked recently about the uh, the Battle of Brooklyn, and by the end of uh, 1776, <clears throat> colonials had been uh, they had been soundly thrashed in Brooklyn, and the uh, the battles after Brooklyn they had been pushed continuously uh, east by the British Army. The uh, uh, the the war was not going well at all for the Continentals, <clears throat> and. Uh, and a great many of them thought that thought that it was basically done. Uh, the Battle of Place on the morning of December 26th, 1776, the day after Christmas. Uh, after General George Washington had been pushed out of New Jersey and then east across, I mean, uh, west across the Delaware River, uh, the, most of the folks thought that that was it. That was going to be the end of this experiment, the end of this uh, Revolutionary War. Colonials, once pushed across the Delaware River, then Washington had ordered all of the all of the boats, barges, etc., had all of them confiscated for uh, uh, over 100 miles in each direction, north and south of the of his crossing point, so that uh, uh, the British regulars could not follow them over. Now it was thought that they were that they had uh, begun gathering wood in order to make boats, but the reality was that. Uh, but this point in the uh, in the season, they were pretty much kind of locking it down. Uh, in the in the winter, most folks did not uh, most gentlemen armies warfare because uh, you know it was cold and 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 messy and rainy, and uh, they just didn't. They locked themselves down into a winter garrison, and uh, they waited out better weather in the spring to continue their their battles. Uh, By early December in 1776, American morale was very, very low. Once the Americans had been pushed out of New York by the British and the Hessian auxiliaries, it wasn't just the British, remember, there was uh, a large contingent of German soldiers or mercenaries uh, hired by George. The Continental Army was forced to retreat across New Jersey and uh, continued to be pushed west. During this time, from the the end of the Battle of uh, of Brooklyn, the Battle of Long Island, until the crossing of the Delaware, over 90% of the soldiers who had served with the Continentals uh, at Long Island were gone. A majority of the men had deserted feeling that the cause for independence was done. And uh, 
a good many of their enlistments were up at the end of the year, on December 31st. So they felt that with the with how poorly the war situation was going, and with their, enlist, their enlistments coming to an end in a few weeks anyway, they just started leaving. They left by the thousands. Even Washington, uh, who was commanding the armies then, even he was at a low point, uh, and he expressed uh, his doubts. He wrote to his cousin in Virginia. He said, I think the game is pretty near up. Now, this is something he was saying to his cousin, while at the same time he was telling uh, other folks that, and, and I believe he felt this, that that he was not going to surrender no matter how dire it got because he could just re- keep retreating west his, uh take any of the men who were willing to stand with him, take them uh, over the mountains and continue on. And I think that the, that the British, uh, this is one of the mistakes that they made, is that no one really knew how big America was. Nobody knew. It was going to be uh, another uh, uh, 60 years or so before folks had a good idea of, of how big the nation was. And Washington was right. He could have, he could have kept retreating west, and, uh, and there would have been no way the British forces could have continued uh, to hound them. You know, with their supply lines uh, growing ever longer, they move away from the coast. And with uh, thousands and thousands of miles still open for Washington's retreat, he could have continued to do so. However, once he crossed the Delaware and the British regulars began to lock themselves down in winter garrisons, they came to a pause. Now, at this time, uh, across the Delaware River, there was a small town in New Jersey called Trenton. And uh, in Trenton, there were three regiments of Hessian soldiers, and they were commanded by Colonel Johann Rahl. Three regiments uh, ended up numbering about uh, 1,400 men. Now, Washington's whole force, everybody he had left at this point, was only about 2,400 men, uh, with infantry divisions that were commanded uh, by Major Generals Nathaniel Green and John Sullivan, and artillery under the direction of Brigadier General Henry Knox. Now, Green and Knox would be the only two generals who who stayed in this thing, who stayed in the fight to the very end. They were two of the most important commanders that Washington had under him. We know that uh, Knox, of course... Uh, made the initial uh, made his uh, initial worthiness known when during the battle for Boston he went uh, in the middle of the winter went to Saratoga and took the cannons from there and brought them back to Boston uh, and then deployed them on the uh, on the high ground over Boston forcing the British to leave. 
uh, he continued his exploits throughout the war and, began and, and was valuable to Washington throughout the war. At, at this low point in the American Revolutionary War, Washington was, he was, uh, he was told that something had to be done because after they were driven out of in New Jersey, like I said, the, the feeling across the nation was that it was done, that, that nothing was going to go on, nothing more was going to go on, that they were, that the colonial forces were beaten and finished. And uh, Washington was being pleaded with, and they said they had, they, they had implored him, please, uh, do something. May, even an attack that doesn't, that doesn't, that is not a success, would at least show that we're still in the game. Because right now, everybody thinks we're done. And you know how that goes. If you're part of a group or part of something that seems like it is a failure or that it's ending, then, then why even stay in it? Why not just go ahead and, and, and get out and head home? Why wait? And that's what folks are doing. They figured it was all done. It was over. So something had to be done. Finally, Washington and his generals devised a plan, and this plan relied on launching coordinated attacks on Trenton from three directions. Caldwalder would launch a diversionary attack against the British garrison at Bordenton, New Jersey. This would also block off reinforcements from the south. Uh, he would have his forces straddling the road uh, from the south, and that would keep anybody from uh, rushing in to assist the forces at Trenton. General Ewing would take 700 militia across the river at Trenton Ferry. He would seize the bridge of the Ashton Creek and prevent enemy troops from escaping Trenton, and the main force, the assault force, uh, Washington's force, of 2,400 men would cross the river nine miles north of Trenton. They would split into two groups. One would be uh, commanded by General Green and the other by Sullivan to launch a pre-dawn attack. Now, Sullivan would attack the town from the south. Green would attack the town from the north. Depending on the success of this operation, the Americans would possibly follow up with separate and Princeton and New Brunswick, once, uh, once they were able to determine how well this attack was going. <clears throat> now, during the week before the battle, American advance parties began to ambush enemy cavalry patrols, and they captured dispatch riders, and uh, they were attacking the Hessian pickets. The commander, the Hessian commander, uh, emphasized the danger to his men, sent a hundred infantry and artillery de detachments to deliver a letter to the British commander at Princeton. Uh, Washington ordered Ewing and his Pennsylvania militia to try and gain information on the Hessian movements and uh, equipment that they had. 
Ewing instead made three successful raids across the river. Now, on December 17th and 18th, host of the Jaegers. These are like the the Hessian, um, like their special forces. Uh, on the 21st, uh, they attacked and set fire to several of the houses there. Now, Washington put constant watches on all the possible crossings near the Continental Army encampment on the Delaware because he thought that Howe would launch an attack from the north on Philadelphia if the river froze over. By now, the river was still running. Uh, now, it wasn't completely it wasn't completely free. There were huge chunks of ice flowing, breaking off or flowing through the river, and uh, ice was beginning to creep out into the river. But the water was still flowing. Once the river had frozen over, then the the men and the cavalry and the artillery and stuff can cross over the frozen river. Now, on the December 20th, 2,000 troops led by General Sullivan arrived in Washington's camp. Now, they'd been under command of Charles Lee, and he had been moving very slowly through northern New Jersey when Lee was captured. Remember, he he was at an inn, and uh, he was miles from the rest of his troops, and he was captured by uh, a group of cavalry. Uh, at the same day that uh, uh, that Sullivan arrived, uh, an additional 800 troops arrived from Fort Ticonderoga. Uh, these were uh, under the command of Gates. December 14th, the Hessians arrived in Trenton to establish their winter quarters. Now, at the time, Trenton was really a fairly small town. They had about 100 houses there and and two major streets in the town, King Street and Queen Street. Those streets are now Warren Street and Broad Street. Uh uh, Von Donop, who was Rawls' superior, had marched south to Mount Holly on the 22nd to deal with the resistance in New Jersey. And uh, he had actually clashed with some of the New Jersey militia there on the 23rd. Donop, who actually despised his junior commander, Rawls, was uh, reluctant to give Rawls command of Trenton. Rawls was known to be uh, loud and unacquainted with the English language, but he was also a 36-year-old soldier, fairly young soldier, with a great deal of battle experience. His request for reinforcements, though, had been turned down by the British commander, James Grant, who had a lot of disdain for the American rebels, and he, he thought that the soldiers were poor soldiers that he, had, he was in no uh, worry of, and you know who can blame him, because uh, over the last few months, uh, they had been very easily driven all the way from uh, Brooklyn uh, out of New York, out of New Jersey, and across to Delaware. And uh, despite Rawls' experience, uh, the Hessians at Trenton were not, uh, they weren't, uh, they weren't that happy with him. They thought he was uh, uh, too nice a guy and that he was not ruthless enough to be successful, right? Uh, his officers had even complained that uh, his love of life was too great. A thought came to him, then another, 
so he could not settle on a firm decision. Rall avoided hard work and had little concern for his troops' comfort. But uh, he did have a lot of experience in battle. Now, Trenton lacked uh, any kind of a city walls, or any kind of barricades or anything like that, any fortifications, which was fairly typical of the American settlements in that area because uh, the Indians had already been driven far enough west that they really had no uh, no regular uh, enemies that they had to be defended against. Now, some of the Hessians advised Rawl to fortify the town and uh, start putting up walls and barricades. And two of the engineers advised uh, that a uh, that a uh, defensive redoubt could be constructed at the upper end of town, and then he could build fortifications along the river. And the engineers actually went so far as to draw up plans, and I've actually seen those plans before, but Rawl disagreed with him. He didn't think it was going to be necessary. Number one, they're going into winter quarters, and and nobody uh, is going to be attacking in winter, at least not any major large attacks. Uh, there may be skirmishes and stuff like that, but there wouldn't be any any large attacks. So Rawl uh, vetoed that. Uh, when Rawl was, again, urged to fortify the, the town, he replied, let them come. We'll go at them with the bayonet. So once again, this showed the the disdain that most of the British and Hessian troops held for the uh, the colonials. Uh, as Christmas got closer, loyalists, uh, folks who were still loyal to the king, came to report that. Uh, came to, to Trenton uh, to report to Rawl that the Americans were planning an action. Now, Washington was keeping the the plans for the attack on Trenton very, very closely guarded. Nonetheless, uh, it's not it's not hard uh, to to get an idea of what's going to happen or, or what could possibly happen uh, because that is, that's where he was quartered and uh, that was the closest place that could be attacked <clears throat> and uh, and it's really hard to keep a secret uh, especially in a civil war type situation which is what this was uh because you have folks telling their family members or other folks, and those folks tell other folks, and very quickly the word gets around about what's going on. There were also American deserters uh, who told that the Hessians that rations were being prepared for an advance across the river. Now, Rawl publicly dismissed such talk as nonsense, but privately, in letter to his superiors, he wrote that, he was worried about an imminent attack, so he was he was publicly dismissing it. But the reality was he was worried uh, that there would be some form of attack. Now he wrote to Donna that he was uh, liable to be attacked at any moment. We're also that Trenton was indefensible. And why was that? Because he refused to 
put up any type of defensive fortifications. He asked that the British troops would establish a garrison in Maidenhead, uh, which is now Lawrenceville, close to Trenton. And this would help uh, uh, put, the, put the British forces straddling the roads, uh, which would help defend the roads from the Americans. His request was denied, and uh, as the Americans continued to disrupt the Hessian supply lines, the officers uh, on Rawls' staff started to share Rawls' fears. One wrote, we have not slept one night in peace since we have come to this place. Now, on December 22nd, a spy reported to Grant that Washington had called a council of war. Grant told Rawl to be on your guard. The main Hessian force of 1,500 men was divided into three regiments, uh, Knapphausen, Rossberg, and Rawl. Now, that night, uh, they didn't send out any patrols because of the severe weather. Remember, 25th, that Christmas night, the weather was... Uh, was very uh, it, the weather was very rough. It was very bad weather. It was very cold. <clears throat> there were strong winds, and uh, it was snowing and sleeting. And that is the night that uh, that the American forces were marching through the night. Uh, before Washington and his troops had left uh, to begin the attack, Benjamin Rush had uh, come over to cheer up uh, General Washington. While he was there, he said he saw a note Washington had written saying, victory or death. And uh, I believe that he saw him uh, scribbling it on a on a piece of paper, on several pieces of paper, on you know several small pieces of paper, and he happened to lean over and read what it said, and it said "victory or death." Now, it turns out that those words would be the would be the passwords for the surprise attack. Each soldier was told to carry uh, 60 rounds of ammunition and three days of rations. Now, when the army arrived at the shores of the Delaware, they were already behind schedule, and the clouds began to form uh, over them as they began to be ferried across the river, and it also began to rain. And while it's raining, the temperature drops, the rain turned to sleet, and finally to snow. The Americans were crossing the river thanks to John Glover and his command, and uh, these were all of the uh, Glover command all of these sailors, all of the folks that were boatmen and sailors, his command consisted of uh, of all of these guys, and he was always uh, the one tasked with uh, with anything that had to do with their with their movements on water. And Glover was a smart, tough commander, and he knew his job. Uh, he got the men across in Durham boats. Uh, and the horses and the artillery went across on large ferries. Now, uh, the 14th Continental Regiment of Glover manned the boats. That's what his unit was called. During the crossing, several men fell overboard. 
including uh, Colonel Haslett. Haslett was quickly pulled out of the water. No one died during the crossing, and all of the artillery pieces made it over in good condition. I just ask you to think about this. You're getting ready to make an attack in the middle of winter, and the the rain or the temperature drops, it turns to sleet and then to snow. You're having to work your way through the ice to get onto the boat, and a lot of folks... uh, because of the ice piling them up, had to wade out to the boats and places. So you may be wet up to the waist in a river in winter, and and you're not going uh, from there to a warm room. You're you're going to march for another uh, 20 hours. Uh, you're going to march soaking wet. These guys are marching in the rain, in the sleet, in the snow, in winter. The majority of them did not have winter clothes. Uh, They didn't have, uh, a a good many of them didn't have shoes. When, when the, the descriptions uh, when they talked about being able to tell where the army went by the by the bloodstains on the snow and ice on the road, that's not an exaggeration. I just want you to think about that: cold and wet, freezing, not having uh, enough. Uh, enough clothing to keep you warm on your march. Maybe all you have is some cloth to wrap around your feet and you're marching on muddy, rocky road. And you're not marching to a battle that you know that you're going to win because uh, because historically we know that they won it. You're, you're marching toward a completely uncertain outcome. And yet they did it. They continued on. <clears throat> All right. <clears throat> Two small detachments of infantry uh, of about 40 men each were ordered uh, out of the main columns. Now, they set roadblocks ahead of the main army, and they were to take prisoner whoever came into or left the town. One of the groups was sent north of Trenton. The other was sent south to block the river road, which went, ran along the Delaware River to Trenton. These guys were, uh, I imagine, the equivalent of the uh, uh, Minutemen. <coughs> I'm sure that they were the uh, the younger, faster, uh, you know, these these special uh, folks because they were going to have to move at a much faster pace than the army was moving in order to get into position uh, of the town to the north and the south of it, so they could block the roads to keep people from from going in or out. 
as the main body of the forces moved up. The uh, the really terrible weather conditions delayed the crossings. They delayed the the landings in New Jersey until 3 a.m. The plan was, the way Washington planned it, was that the landings would be completed with all of the forces assembled uh, on the east side of the river by 12 a.m., by midnight. With the three-hour delay, Washington realized then it would be impossible to launch a pre-dawn attack uh, another setback occurred for the Americans as Generals Caldwalder and Ewing, who were supposed to be at south across the river, were unable to uh, to cross or join the attack at all due to the weather conditions they were facing downriver. At 4 a.m., after they had, uh, the uh, all of the forces had been assembled. Everything was ready. The soldiers began their march to Trenton. Along the way, they were joined by quite a few several uh, uh, by quite a few of the uh, civilians, and uh, and also a lot of these civilians uh, volunteered to work as guides. You know, a lot of the local folks. They saw Washington forces coming. They wanted to to help any way they could. They volunteered to work as guides. You know, they said, "Hey, look, we know the the routes here. We know the roads. So let us help you." Uh, after marching uh, about two kilometers uh, through the winding roads into the wind, they finally reached Bear Tavern, uh, where they turned right, and the ground was really slippery, but it was level making it a lot easier for their horses and artillery, they finally began to make a, a, a little bit better time. Then they reached Jacobs Creek, where with a little bit of difficulty, the Americans made it across because the creek, the creek was, uh, was running pretty good and it was very muddy. The two, the two groups, uh, the two uh, attacking groups, stayed together uh, until they reached uh, Birmingham. Birmingham, the road split and they split because they were going to attack from two different directions. Soon after, they reached the house of Benjamin Moore, where the family offered food and drink to Washington, to Washington, not to the to the other uh, 1,500 soldiers. At this point, uh, it started to get daylight, and uh, many of the troops didn't have boots. And uh, like I said, they were wearing rags around their feet, and and... And they were actually leaving a blood trail. I mean, they were leaving a, a an actual blood trail. And though though no one was killed in the battle, I'm gonna I'll give you a spoiler alert. No one was killed. None of the colonial forces were killed in the Battle of Trenton. Two men died during the march. Two men stopped. They fell out of line on the march, and they stopped, and it sat down, and they froze to death and died. All right? That's how rough it was. That's how cold it was. Now, I imagine these the men were probably not uh, strapping young men in the prime of their health, but regardless, that's how cold it was. 
They two of the men fell out of uh, fell out of the line of march and sat down, and they died. They froze to death there. As they marched along, continuing the attack, Washington rode up and down the line, and he was encouraging his men to to continue to be strong, to keep the faith. Sullivan sent a courier over from his group to tell Washington that the weather was wetting his men's gunpowder uh, because the weather was was turning from it turned from rain to sleet to snow. Then it started turning back again to sleet. <clears throat> And this was wetting the gunpowder in all of the guy, all of his men's uh, muskets. Washington wrote out a response and sent it to Sullivan. The response was, "Tell General Sullivan to use the bayonet. I am resolved to take Trenton." Once they had reached about uh, two kilometers, uh, about three kilometers outside the town. The main columns reunited with the advance parties. They didn't reunite with each other. They just each of the separate columns met up with their advance parties, and uh, they were startled by the sudden appearance of fifty armed men. But they were American, and uh, this was uh, Adam Stephan, who who had led an attack earlier uh, the previous evening uh, on Trenton, and he was returning from it. And uh, and once Washington realized this, and he spoke, and he found out what happened, Washington began to uh, he began to freak out because what he figured is that because of Stephen's attack that the Hessians were going to be on alert now, and they would be ready for the, it wouldn't be a surprise attack anymore. Washington and his forces would be attacking into a uh, an alerted uh, outpost. However, what he didn't realize uh, was that it couldn't have actually, it couldn't have worked out any better. Cause Rawl had been alerted. Remember I told you he He'd got several messages, including one uh, Christmas evening, saying, hey, an attack is on the way. Now, they were referring to Washington's forces were coming to attack. Well, Stephen uh, and a group of uh, 50 of his men, these weren't, this was local partisans. They weren't part of the Continental Army. They decided they wanted to make an attack, so they did. They made an attack on uh, on the outpost there at uh, Trenton. Uh, They shot a couple of guys and uh, then they took off. So this ended up working in Washington's favor because Rawl considered that attack by Stephen to be the one that he had been alerted to. So once it happened, the Stephen forces withdrew, uh, he figured that that was it. It was done, it was over, and uh, no alert was given. So, even though Washington yelled at him, you, sir, you, sir, you may have ruined all of my plans by having them put on guard. And uh, they said that he was very agitated. Despite this, Washington ordered the advance to continue. Uh, 
and about 8 o'clock, about 8 o'clock or so, uh, about a a mile northwest of Trenton, uh, the assault began. Washington led the assault riding in front uh, of his soldiers uh, as the Hessian commander of the outpost there, the, there was a, the outpost was uh, uh, was at a at a Cooper's shop uh, on Pennington Road, about a mile northwest of, of Trenton. <clears throat> uh, and as the attack began, the Hessian commander of the outpost, uh, Lieutenant uh, Andreas von Wiederholt, left. He was leaving out of the shop, and an American fired at him, and Wiederholt started uh, shouting out, uh, Dauphine, Dauphine, which is uh, the enemy. And uh, the other Hessians came uh, running out of the uh, out of the outpost. The Americans fired three volleys. The Hessians returned one volley of their own. Uh, Washington then ordered uh, uh, Hans Pennsylvania riflemen and a battalion of uh, German-speaking infantry to block the road that led to Princeton. And they attacked the Hessian outpost. We all soon realized that that this was more than just a raiding party. And uh, seeing the other uh, Hessian soldiers uh, beginning to retreat uh, and trying to escape from the, the outpost, uh, uh, he did the same. He grabbed his men and did the same. Uh, both of the Hessian detachments made organized retreats. Uh, they weren't just running helter-skelter. They would retreat, set up, fire a volley, and then continue uh, their organized retreats. Or they weren't running. They were they were fighting a retrograde action, as it's called. Uh, on the high ground at the north end of Trenton, they were joined by a duty company from the Lostburg Regiment. These folks together, this group, engaged the Americans. They were still retreating slowly, keeping up a continuous fire, and using the houses for cover. And once they got into the city of Trenton proper, uh, they gained covering fire from the other Hessian guard companies uh, on the outskirts of the town. Another guard company nearer to the Delaware River rushed east to their aid, leaving open the river road into Trenton. Washington ordered the escape route to Princeton to be cut off, sending infantry in battle formation to block it while artillery formed at the head of King and Queen Street. Remember I told you that, uh, that there were about 100 houses and there were two main streets running through the town, King and Queen Street. And these streets gave you, know, they gave you uh, a full view down through the middle of town, both of them. And uh, Knox had dashed over and set up the artillery so that it covered, it would go straight down both the King and Queen streets. Leading the southern American column, uh, General Sullivan entered Trenton by the abandoned River Road and blocked the only crossing over the uh, Assunpink Creek to cut off the Hessian escape. Remember I told you the, the one group of Hessians uh, were, were rushing to help uh, rushing east to help the folks that were engaging the battle in Trenton, but they left the river road open. Well, as they did, 
Sullivan entered that route and then closed it off so that nobody could get out. Now, Sir Sullivan briefly uh, ordered the stop of his van to make sure Green's division had time to drive the Hessians from their outposts in the north. But soon after, they continued their, van, uh, their attack uh, and uh, started beginning their attack on the Hermitage, which is the home of uh, Philemon Dixon. That's where the 50 Jaegers under the command of Lieutenant von Grothhausen were stationed. Uh, Lieutenant Grothhausen brought 12 of the Jaegers into action against the advance guard, but he only advanced uh, uh, a few hundred yards when he saw a call of Americans advancing towards the Hermitage. Uh, so he pulled his men back to the Hessian barracks, where he was joined by the rest of the Jaegers. After the, the exchange of one volley, they, they turned and they began running. Uh, a lot of guys were trying to swim across the creek, while others uh, escaped over that bridge uh, across the uh, uh, the creek, which it, it, it had not been cut off yet. They had blocked the two other bridges, but this one bridge was still left over. Now, there were 20, 20 British dragoons uh, in the, the village at this time. Those guys also took off and... Uh, <clears throat> and fled out of town as Green and Sullivan's, Sullivan's columns <clears throat> pushed in. Washington moved uh, his unit to the high ground, Norking and Queen Streets, so that he could see the action. So there was some high ground uh, that commanded the town. He could see the action and direct the troops. By this time, the uh, American artillery, the other side of the Delaware River, came into action uh, really blasting the Hessian positions. That's because the folks on the other side of the river, uh, while they couldn't bring their uh, they couldn't bring their men and troops over, they set up their artillery uh, up on the other side of the river, and they had a view, and they, had, they were able to engage the town from across the river. So they began pounding the town with artillery from across the river. And Knox had his cannon set up on King and Queen Streets, and he was blasting down the streets uh, with ball and grape. When the alarm sounded that the town was under attack, the three Hessian regiments uh, were quickly trying to prepare for battle. The Raw Regiment formed on Lower King Street, along with the Lossburg Regiment. They were forming up, you know, uh, and that means that they were... They were all standing in the street, uh, like getting into columns so that they could be commanded into battle. Uh, Lieutenant uh, Peel, who was uh, Rawls' brigade adjutant, he went to Rawls' room, woke him up, uh, in, and he also discovered that the rebels had taken the V of the main streets of the town and this, of course, is right where the engineers had recommended building uh, the uh, defensive redoubt. Rowell ordered his regiment to form up at the lower end of King Street and the Lossburg Regiment to prepare, prepare for an advance up Queen Street. The Knopfhausen Regiment was to stand by as a reserve for Rowell's advance up King Street. However, remember Knox had already put cannon uh, at the head of the two main streets and 
as soon as uh, the regiments were formed up in the streets, that's that's where all these guys were standing in columns in the streets. Then Knox began to fire, and uh, it was doing a severe damage to Rawls regiment. Ply, uh, Rawls directed his regiment, supported by a few companies of the Lossburg regiment, to clear the guns. The Hessians formed ranks and began to advance up the street, but they were very quickly shredded by the American cannon fire and fire from Mercer's men, uh, who had taken up position uh, between the houses and in front of the houses on the left side of the street. So they were firing into the flanks as the cannons were firing into the main ranks. They were breaking, they completely broke the ranks of the Hessians, and the Hessians began to flee. I mean, they were getting they were getting raped and rolled. Raw ordered uh, two three-pound cannons that he had into action. Now, these aren't very big. I mean, you've got to remember, a three-pound cannon uh, is not that big a cannon, but still it's, uh, you know, it's a weapon of uh, of mass destruction at that time. Uh, I believe it fired a uh, projectile about the size of a little bit bigger than a golf ball. Uh, after getting off about six rounds each within just a couple of minutes, uh, half of the Hessians' manned guns were killed by the American cannon. And after the men fled to cover behind the houses and fences, their, those cannons that they were manning were taken by the Americans, turned around, and uh, and used against uh, the Hessians. <clears throat> Once on Queen Street, uh, the Hessians attempted to advance up the street also, and they were repulsed by the guns that were under the command of Thomas Forrest. After firing about uh, four rounds each, two more of the Hessian guns were silenced. One of Forrest's howitzers was put out of action with a broken axle, and uh, the Knopfhausen regiment became separated from the Lossberg and the Rawl regiments. So they was no longer now acting as 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 three regiments working together. <coughs> the the three had become split, with the Knockhausen being split off from the other two. The Lossburg Regiment and Raw Regiment fell back to a field outside of the town, and these guys were taking very heavy losses from the uh, grape shot and musket fire in the southern part of the town. Uh, Americans under command of Sullivan began to overwhelm the Hessians. Stark, John Stark, led a bayonet charge at the Knockhausen Regiment whose resistance broke uh, because they couldn't get their weapons to fire. They were wet, and uh, Sullivan led a column of men to block off their escape to keep them from getting across uh, the creek. The Hessians in the field, and remember there's, if you're looking at the town, uh, you've got the main town, and then it's got, it's almost like in an elbow of the river, and then there's a field between the town and the river. That's where the troops had gone to. So now they're stuck out in the open, with a river to their back and and no cover anywhere. Uh, the Hessians that were in the field, they tried to get to quickly get reorganized and quickly make uh, one last attempt to retake the town so they could break out of this uh, of the position that they were in. Rawl decided to try to attack the American flank on the heights north of the town. Rawl yelled, uh, forward, charge, advance, advance. And the Hessians began to move, and the 
Brigade's band started up, and uh, the bugles and drums uh, were, were playing, trying to rouse the, the spirit of the Hessians. Washington was watching this. Still in the, he was still on the high ground uh, uh, at the base of the town, between the town and the Delaware, and he saw the Hessians beginning to approach the American flank. He ordered his troops uh, to move and assume a battle formation against the enemy. The two Hessian regiments began marching toward King Street, but they were caught in the in a, a triple crossfire uh, as they were trying to move across King Street. Some of the Americans taken up uh, positions inside the houses. This was reducing their exposure. Uh, and then the civilians that were in the town, remember there were over 100 homes. Uh, the, a lot of the civilians in the town decided that they would join the fight too. Now, despite this, uh, they kept pushing forward. And they actually uh, started to recapture the, the, some of the three-pound cannon that, that they had lost. Now, at the head of King Street, Knox saw the Hessians had retaken the cannon, and he ordered his troops to go and take them back again. So six men ran out, and after a brief struggle, they seized the cannon, turning them on the Hessians. Now, with, the, with most of the Hessians unable to fire their guns because of the uh, their gunpowder being damp, the attack stalled out. The Hessian formation began to break, and and when when the formations begin to break in battle, it, it's it's very contagious, it very very ugly, very quickly, and uh, and the 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 whole formation began to to scatter very quickly. Right about this time, Rawl caught a ball, and. Uh, it mortally wounded him. They saw their commander go down. Uh, Washington led the main body of his main the main body of his troops down from the from the high ground where he's watching it, yelling, uh, "March on, my brave fellows! After me!" Most of the Hessians had retreated from the field into an orchard, but with the Americans in close pursuit, now they were surrounded. I mean, totally surrounded, out in the open, wet gunpowder. The Hessians were offered terms of surrender, and they quickly agreed to them. Although ordered to join Rawl, the remnants of the Nopal's regiment had mistakenly marched in the opposite direction. They tried to escape across the bridge, but they found it had been taken. The Americans quickly swept in, uh, defeating the Hessian attempt to break through their lines, surrounded by Sullivan's men, this regiment also surrendered just minutes after the rest of the brigade had surrendered. We find that the Hessian forces suffered 22 fatalities and 83 serious injuries. Now, I'm sure watching this, if you could watch it, you would think that it would have to be more than that, but... uh, but I guess that's uh, I guess that's a good amount. Twenty-two men were killed, eighty-three seriously injured, and that also uh, that also doesn't tell you the whole story because uh, a bayonet through the leg or a bayonet through the body or shoulder 
that you could uh, wrap a rack around. It was not considered a serious injury. You would need like to lose uh, a hand or or lose a lot of your fingers or to lose an arm or uh, or to have your eyes shot out or, or, or something like that for it to be a serious injury. The Americans suffered only two fatalities and only five injuries from war wounds, including a near-fatal wound to uh, the future president, James Monroe, including the American soldiers who died of exhaustion, exposure, and illness in the following days. The total American fatalities from the expedition may have been higher than those of the Hessians because the... Remember, I told you, these guys... These guys were pushing themselves. They didn't have uh, they didn't have uh, much of anything to eat. Pushed from the uh, from their garrisons in New York and New Jersey, uh, without being able to bring any of their equipment, they pushed themselves by marching uh, over 24 hours uh, in this battle and in the aftermath of the battle, battle marching back. And uh, a great many of them died from exhaustion, exposure, and from illnesses that they that they developed in the days following it. You know, you don't, uh, like I said, it might be hard for you to, to wade into uh, an icy river, waist deep in the middle of winter, uh, march without any rest or food for 24 hours until you uh, until you get back to what? Not uh, a warm barracks. You just get back to a campfire, and and maybe no blanket, maybe just the clothes you're wearing. But they did it. <clears throat> The captured troops were sent to Philadelphia and, and then later moved to Lancaster. Uh, in 1777, they were ended up being moved to Virginia. Raw was mortally wounded uh, there during the battle, and he died later on uh, during the day at his headquarters. All four of the Hessian colonels in Trenton that day were killed in the battle. The Lostburg Regiment was effectively removed from the British forces. Parts of the Nophausen uh, Regiment escaped to the south. That's the guys that had managed to get across uh, Asselton Creek before the bridge got closed. Uh, but Sullivan ended up catching an additional 200 men, uh, along with their regiments, cannons, and supplies. Also captured approximately 1,000 uh, muskets, and a great deal of much-needed ammunition because once they captured the town, they captured all of the uh, uh, the ammunition, the cannons, the uh, the muskets. They even they even made a big deal about capturing all of the musical instruments that the uh, Hessian band had. They uh, they managed to capture themselves, uh, you know enough uh, instruments they could have their own band now. <laughs> now, popular history, and you'll find guys uh, on the Internet and everywhere else talking about this, saying that the uh, 
the it wasn't any big deal because all of the Hessians had been having a big uh, liquor party uh, that night, and they were all drunk in bed, suffering a hangover and stuff when Washington uh, attacked. But that's absolutely false. As a matter of fact, because of the continuing attacks Washington had led uh, or had ordered against the Hessians, uh, there was no party. Matter of fact, a great deal of the men were actually on uh, what, like what you'd call a combat alert that night. Uh, and uh, Raw himself did not drink. Not even his own uh, officers uh, later that none of them uh, saw himself drink, saw himself drunk, saw Roll drunk. <laughs> uh, uh, but if you guys uh, if you guys have read the story of uh, Washington uh, crossing the Delaware by David Hackett Fisher, all the research he had done showed that that was not so. Uh, an American soldier, uh, John Greenwood, who had actually fought in the battle and he act- and supervised the Hessians afterwards, said. Uh, he was certain not a drop of liquor was drunk during the whole night, uh, nor, as he could see, even a piece of bread eaten. Uh, military historian Edward G. Lingle also has researched this. All of his research said that the Germans were dazed and tired from the constant alerts, constant attacks, <clears throat> but there was no truth to the legend claiming that uh, that the Hessians were helplessly drunk there in town. Following the surrender of the Hessians, uh, Washington is reported to have grabbed the hand of a young officer and said, this is a glorious day for our country. Uh, I soon learned that uh, uh, later and uh, Ewing had been unable to make the crossing. Uh, Leaving his his main army is his only his army of uh, 2,400 men isolated uh, without the additional uh, 2,600 men from the other two forces. Washington realized he he really did not have the forces to attack Princeton and New Brunswick. Small but decisive battle, as with as with later on with the Battle of Calvin's had, in effect, uh, hugely disproportionate to its size. The colonial effort was galvanized, and the Americans turned the... uh, They overturned the psychological dominance which had been achieved by the British uh, in the last few months. Howe was absolutely stunned by the Harrison... the the Hessians... Garrison being easily surprised and overwhelmed. Uh, this is this was a complete turning point. It had gone from all of the folks saying this is it, we're done, it's over, uh, to a complete changeover to now folks were beginning uh after the battle, 
they're beginning to realize that that it could be won with the way that the British troops had been handling the occupations with the uh, the murders and the rapes and the burning of the houses of of not just of rebels but of their own loyalists uh, they were completely changing the attitudes of the folks in New Jersey. Now, with the Battle of Trenton won, and word of it racing back to the east, the whole psychological uh, uh, effects of it were were beginning to change. Washington immediately uh, ordered his troops, uh, along with the prisoners, to begin marching back. Uh, to uh, their positions across the Delaware. And by noon, Washington's force had moved back across the Delaware. They'd been ferried back across, along with all the prisoners and all of the the uh, the supplies and gear that they'd captured. By noon, they were back in Pennsylvania. This battle gave the Continental Congress uh, a completely renewed confidence. And it proved that colonial forces could defeat the uh, regulars. It increased the reenlistments in the Continental Army forces. By defeating the uh, European army, the colonials reduced the fear which the Hessians had caused earlier that year after the fighting in New York. When, when the folks think that the enemy that they're facing is so great it's so fearsome that they can't be defeated. That's a huge uh, psychological factor. But once you have gone, and, and, and this has been proven over and over again in battle, uh, until the Japanese forces had been defeated uh, in several battles, they had the same effect uh, on, the, on any of the forces facing them. It wasn't until we had defeated, uh, actually the Australians were the the, force, the first forces to do so, uh, that that it was felt that uh, that we realized that they were not a an undefeatable force, and folks started uh, enlisting again uh, in the colonial forces. Uh, there were two guys, two uh, American officers of note who were wounded. William Washington, who was a, co- uh, a cousin of the general, uh, and Lieutenant James Monroe, who was the future president. Monroe was carried from the field bleeding badly after he was struck in the left shoulder by a musket ball which severed an artery. Uh, Dr. John Ricker clamped the artery, preventing him from bleeding to death, Two hours before the battle served, uh, or the hours uh, before the battle served as the inspiration for the painting, Washington Crossing the Delaware, by German-American artist Emanuel Lutz. The image of the painting, which Washington is majestic in his boat as it crosses the Delaware River, is generally believed to be more symbolic than historically accurate. Uh, The waters of the river icy and treacherous, and the flag Monroe holds was not actually created until six months after the battle. On the other hand, 
uh, David Hackett Fisher argued that because the crossing took place in a storm, uh, people may have people may indeed have stood up to keep from sitting in the icy water in the boat. Uh, nevertheless, because of the emotional content, the painting has become an icon of American history. Everybody, almost everyone, can pull that image up in their mind when you say Washington crossing the Delaware. Almost everyone can pull up an image. Uh, maybe they didn't see the, the painting, but uh, they saw uh, a play in school on it, or, or they themselves were in a play in school on it. Regardless, uh, it's also known as the Second Battle of Trenton. And this is a battle between the American and British troops that took place uh, in the city of, in the town of Trenton and around it on January 2nd, because Immediately following the surprise victory at the Battle of Trenton on the 26th, uh, Washington gathered together a council of war. They expected a strong British counterattack, but Washington and the council decided to meet the attack in Trenton. And uh, once again, his men crossed back over the the Delaware uh, just a day later. Uh, after their initial crossing and return, formed up his men uh, south of the uh, Assumpink Creek. Assumpink Creek. <clears throat> uh, General Cornwallis led the British forces southward in the aftermath of the uh, the Battle of Trenton. He left 1,400 men under Lieutenant Colonel uh, Charles Mahood in Princeton. He left that force there. Then he continued on advancing to Trenton with uh, 5,000 of his men on January 2nd. His advance was significantly slowed by defensive skirmishing with American riflemen under the command of Edward Hand. This is, uh, this is, these are, this is one of the battles that uh, showed the effectiveness of aimed rifle fire. These guys were, they were skirmishing uh, all along the route with uh, <coughs> Cornwallis's <coughs> troops, uh, shooting at them from distances that Cornwallis's troops could not respond from, and they were engaging them constantly in skirmishes. They would set up, fire on them, and then uh, retreat to another position, set up and fire on them as the uh, columns were were marching toward Trenton. And it, it significantly slowed the uh, the column in giving Washington and his group more time to set up. The advance guard uh, actually did not reach, reach Trenton until uh, twilight of the 2nd. Then after assaulting the American positions three times and being repulsed each time, Cornwallis decided to wait and finish the battle the next day. I'm going to I'm going to speed this up. Uh, he Cornwallis decided not to 
not to uh, to continue the attacks that night. Uh, he decided to his men and begin the and continue the attack the next day. <clears throat> he said that he would bag him in the morning. Uh, Cornwallis's general, his quartermaster general, uh, General William Erskine, urged Cornwallis to a strike and continue to attack right away, saying, if Washington is the general I take him to be, his army will not be found there in the morning. And remember, Washington had already pulled this once. Remember, in his uh, middle-of-the-night retreat across the river, Washington, once again, pulled it off. Uh, instead of trying to defend with his men against the uh, the 5,000-man force from uh, Cornwallis's uh, army, he had his guys uh, load everything up. They muffled the tires on the of the the wooden wheels on the artillery. And then uh, they detailed uh, several men to keep up the campfires, keep the campfires burning, to keep uh, uh, taking shovels and hitting them on the ground, on the rocks, and, and, and generally making noise, making it sound like uh, the command was still there. When actually, uh, Washington had taken his men gathering them up, and by 2 a.m., his group of men were already leaving uh, and on their way to Princeton. Now, he'd left uh, about 500 men behind and two cannons uh, to keep the fires burning, make noise. uh, But by morning, uh, as things continue to slow down during the night, these guys, too, took off. When the British formed up to attack, and they got ready, and they charged across the bridge, there was nobody there. They were gone. And, and <clears throat> Washington's forces uh, were well on the way uh, to Princeton. Uh All right. <clears throat> once the uh, once Washington and uh, his men were on the way to Princeton, <clears throat> Washington ordered uh, all of the excess baggage they had with him, all of the stuff that uh, that they would normally take along with them. He had it diverted and sent to Burlington, where it could then be sent to Pennsylvania. Uh, the ground had, had frozen, which made it possible to move the artillery with him without it sinking into the ground. And by, by midnight, the baggage uh, had, was on its way to Burlington. And all the guns had been wrapped in, uh, the wheels had been wrapped in heavy cloth, and they were on the way. Uh, along the way, 
the men were ordered to march in absolute silence, not making a sound, uh, being told not to cough, not to talk, uh, not to curse, not to uh, to light any fire. But along the way, uh, a rumor had spread. They were being surrounded, and uh, and this caused a, a great deal of uh, of panic. <clears throat> and uh, <clears throat> and some of the uh, fighting militia ended up uh, taking off and uh, running uh, towards Philadelphia. The, the march was a very difficult march, as uh, as a lot of the route actually went to through pretty thick woods, and the ground was hard and icy. Uh, their horses were slipping and sliding, and uh, and men were falling through ice uh, in the creeks and over ponds and stuff like that. And as dawn finally came, uh, the army was approaching, uh, Washington's forces was approaching a stream called Stony Brook, and the road the army took, followed Stony Brook for about a mile further until it uh, intersected the post road from Trenton to Princeton. But uh, off to the right side of the road, there was an unused road which crossed the farmland of Thomas Clark. This road was not visible from the post road and ran through a cleared land to a stretch uh, where you could see the town, and the town could be entered at any point because the British had left the road uh, undefended. They had the main road, uh, the post road defended, but not this road, this road which uh, was crossing uh, Thomas Carter Farm. Uh, but Washington was running behind schedule, and he had planned to attack and capture the British outpost once again before dawn and capture the garrison shortly afterward. But by the, ta- by the time dawn came, he was still two miles away from town. But Washington sent 350 men uh under the command of Hugh Mercer, to the, destroy the bridge over Stony Creek in order to delay Cornwallis' army when he found out Washington had escaped. So these guys were going to uh, to race ahead, and and a lot of them were pioneers. They were going to chop it down and destroy the bridge. <laughs> About 8 o'clock, Washington wheeled the rest of his army to the right, down the unused road, First in the column with General John Sullivan's division, uh, consisting of two brigades. Following them were uh, Cad Willager's brigade and then Daniel Hitchcock's brigade. Cornwallis, at this time, had sent orders to uh, Mahood to bring the 17th and 55th regiments to join his army in the morning. And Mahood moved out from Princeton to fulfill these orders when his troops were climbing the hill south of Stony Brook, Stony Brook Creek, and they saw the main American army. Unable to figure out the size of the American army due to the, to the wooded hills, he sent a writer to warn the, uh, the 40th Regiment, which he had left in Princeton. Then he wheeled the 17th and 55th Regiments around and headed back. Uh, that day, Mahood had also called off the patrol which was supposed to reconnoiter the area from which Washington was approaching. Uh, they were leaving the fort anyway that day and, and 
going to join Cornwallis, he called off the patrol that was supposed to uh, do the recon in that area. Uh, Mercer received word that Mahood was leading his troops back across the bridge and back to Princeton. Mercer then, on orders from Washington, he moved his columns to the right in order to hit the British before they could confront Washington's main army. Mercer moved toward Mahood's rear, but when he realized he was not going to be able to cut off Mahood in time, he decided to join Sullivan. And when Mahood learned that Mercer was actually in his rear and moved to join Sullivan, Mahood detached part of the 55th Regiment to join the 40th Regiment in town, and then moved the rest of the 55th and the 17th to attack Mercer. Well, the result of this uh, was that Mahood's <clears throat> two regiments, <clears throat> I'm going to have to skip uh, through some of the battle for you and uh, and just tell you that <clears throat> uh, after making a brief stand, uh, at the edge of town, the British uh, had to fall back. Uh, some of them actually left Princeton. Uh, others were trying to make a stand in Nassau Hall. But Alexander Hamilton bought up, fired several rounds into the building, which pretty, pretty much destroyed it. Uh, the Americans rushed the front door, broke it down, and uh, as they were doing this, the uh, last part of the regiment uh, stuffed a white flag out the windows and walked out of the building and laid down their arms. After they after they entered Princeton, the Americans began to loot the abandoned British supply wagons and the town itself. Now, with the news that Cornwallis was approaching, Washington knew he had to get out of there. Uh, he wanted to push onto Brunswick because there was a British pay chest there, he learned, that held 70,000 pounds. But Knox and Green talked him out of it, because there was just no way. He'd already pushed his men to make several 24-hour marches in the course of just uh, two days in the middle of winter. He'd been lucky both times and had uh, experienced victories at both, and he better not uh, push his luck anymore. Uh Washington instead moved his army to the Somerset Courthouse and then in the following days to Morristown and uh, and began to set up his winter quarters. After the battle, Cornwallis abandoned many of the New Jersey posts and had his army retreat to New Brunswick. This was the, the beginning turn in the American Revolutionary War. All right, uh, that's about as far as we're going to be able to cover uh, tonight. I wanted to get uh, to touch on the Battle of Millstone and the uh, Forge Wars, uh, but we'll do the we'll do the Forge Wars as part of another show because the Forge Wars I think are very interesting and also a very important part of the American Revolutionary War. 
uh, these are the wars that went through the winter. While everybody was in their winter quarters, folks still had to go out and they had to collect food and and livestock and firewood and everything else that they needed to get through the, through their winter in their quarters. And they ended up fighting over it. You know, if, if uh, several uh, if units ended up in the same areas trying to get to forge the same materials that they fought over. It. All right. Uh, I want to thank you guys uh, for listening tonight. And thank the folks that are going to listen in uh, in archives. And I want to tell you that uh, that we appreciate uh, appreciate you guys listening. And we'll see you this next uh, week, uh, 7 p.m. Central. Until then, uh, God bless and keep you all. Cheese!